The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We're temporarily pausing our journey through Acts this morning and looking instead at Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. It says... This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, he may be, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God bless the reading of this word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth it contains, for the wisdom it contains. Lord, more than anything, that your word is a means by which we can be with you, where we can experience you, where we can see you for who you are. Lord, left to ourselves, we would just be feeling around in the dark. Thank you for the light of your word. And our prayer is really what we just sung, that we would be able to taste and see the gospel Even in Titus chapter 1, the gospel's there, as it is in every passage of your word. Lord, help us to taste that and see that and and see you for who you are this morning. Lord, give us great insight, eyes to see and hearts to receive everything you have for us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 6.12, Jesus goes out to a mountain by himself and prays literally all night. He spends all night in prayer. And I don't about you, but I enjoy, I really value my sleep. <laughs> I assume Jesus did as well. And so we can only conclude from that that whatever it was that drove him to pray so fervently must have been extremely important. So what do you think it was? What was it that could have motivated Jesus and driven Jesus to pray the way he did? Perhaps some would assume that uh, maybe Jesus was praying for the the Father's blessing on his ministry, that he would have fruitful ministry, that, that doors would be open for his message, that more and more people would be influenced by his teaching. Or perhaps others would assume that there was a particular person on his heart, maybe a loved one who was going through something very difficult and he was praying because of his great compassion for that person. But even a cursory glance at Luke chapter 6 shows us immediately that it, it wasn't either of those things that drove Jesus to pray all night. Instead, Jesus was praying about a decision he would make the next day, about who to appoint as his disciples. Who would be 
among the twelve whom he would teach and train and eventually send out as apostles. That's what consumed his thoughts as he spent all night in prayer. You know what that tells me? It tells me that Jesus viewed this decision before him of who to appoint to positions of leadership as a decision of paramount importance. And not only was it important for Jesus in Luke 6, but it's also important for us during this next season in the life of our church. Uh, Over the course of the next few months, we believe that God is leading us to appoint one or two additional elders in our church. So most of you know that after sending out Kevin Godin, one of our elders, a couple of weeks ago to start a church, or more accurately to restart a church in Michigan, that now only leaves us with two on-site elders, which isn't very many. So we'd like to appoint one or two more. And without any exaggeration, I believe that this decision about who to appoint to lead our church is the most important kind of decision that we could ever make. More important than anything building related or budget related or program related. No other decision is as important as this. Now let me back up a little bit and say that one of our most deeply held values as a church is to be thoroughly biblical. We believe that the words of the Bible are actually the words of God Himself. And so we want to gladly submit ourselves to every one of those words. Because we know that following God's instructions leads to experiencing God's blessing. Um, And not too long ago, I purchased a nail gun for a home improvement project I was doing. I was putting up some some crown molding, and I'm sure a lot of you guys especially can understand that I've been wanting to purchase a nail gun anyway, right? I mean, what guy doesn't want a nail gun, right? So this project finally gave me an excuse to get one. But as I was taking that nail gun out of the box, like a young child on Christmas morning, it dawned upon me uh, that... I actually have no clue how to use a nail gun. I mean, I know you, you pull the trigger and it shoots the nails, but you know, how do you load the nails in there? And what, what do all the different levers and switches do? And so I did what might seem like a novel idea to summon here, and I actually read the owner's manual. And after reading the owner's manual, I was able to successfully use the nail gun for several hours without anybody getting injured. Right? The, the, the manual uh, helped me know how to use that nail gun in the way it was designed to be used. And if I hadn't read the manual, things probably wouldn't have gone as well. I'd probably be speaking to you this morning with a, an eye patch on or maybe some kind of other bandage somewhere on my body. Um, and so, in general, if you follow the instructions, especially with a tool like that, things just usually end up going a lot better for everybody. And in the same way, if we want things to go well for us as a church, it just makes sense to follow the instructions for church that God's given to us in the Bible. Especially with regard to this matter before us of appointing additional elders. 
as we've already heard, the Bible speaks very clearly about elders in Titus 1, 5 through 9. The main idea of this passage is quite simple, that churches need qualified elders. Churches need qualified elders. And looking at this passage, there are three questions I would like to ask and then answer related to eldership. First, what is an elder? Second, what are the qualifications for an elder? And third, how should elders relate to one another? So, question one, what is an elder? In verse 5, Paul reminds us that Titus is supposed to, uh, or he reminds Titus he's supposed to appoint elders in every town. So, what is an elder? And the simplest answer would be to say that an elder is somebody who leads a church. Um, also, if we examine this passage closely, we see that the word elder is used synonymously with another word in verse 7, the word overseer, which is also the Greek word that sometimes that's translated bishop. So, overseer and bishop translate the same Greek word. So, in verse 5, Paul talks about appointing elders, and then spends the next few verses describing the various qualifications of an elder. But in the middle of listing those qualifications, he also describes these very same men as overseers or bishops. Again, two different ways to translate the same word. So, if we're just ignoring everything else and just going according to the Bible, uh, a bishop isn't higher than an elder. Rather, a bishop is an elder. It's the same office. Uh, the Bible also uses these titles interchangeably in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, 17, it describes how Paul, uh, quote, called the elders of the church to come to him. And then when they came to him, uh, he said to him in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, Paul calls the elders to himself and then refers in his speech to them as overseers or bishops. And if you're wondering how the term pastor fits into all of this, uh, well, Acts 20 actually addresses that as well. Basically, yet again, it has the same meaning. The word pastor literally means shepherd. Right, like the shepherd of a flock of sheep. And you'll notice in Acts 20, 28 that Paul says to these men, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So there's one reference to sheep. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The phrase care for is literally translated Shepherd. It's the, it's the verbal form of shepherd. So, Paul commands these men to shepherd the church of God. Uh, hence the title, pastor. And actually, the Apostle Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So, again, elders are commanded to be shepherds. And if, after looking at all that, it kind of gives you a little bit of a headache, it's all right. Just remember that an elder is an overseer, is a bishop, is a pastor. 
All these terms refer to the same person, the same office. So really, I've actually just made your life a whole lot simpler. But you can thank me later. And as the title pastor suggests, uh, the responsibility of these men is to look after the church the way a shepherd looks after a flock of sheep. Think about the things that a, a shepherd does. He feeds the sheep. He protects the sheep. He cares for the various needs that a sheep have. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the way a, a mother deer cares for her, her baby deer, right? Uh, being from this area, you, you, you probably haven't passed like a, a shepherd lately, <laughs> shepherding a flock of sheep, but you probably have seen deer, right? You, you've seen a, a mother deer interacting with babies, perhaps. Uh, we're blessed to have a nice little field behind our house that's surrounded by a, a pretty good-sized wooded area, and uh, we regularly see, numerous times a week, deer basically in our backyard. And it's been a deer trail for as long as we've lived there, including mother and baby deer. And so uh, think about what a mother deer does for her babies. She's always looking around to make sure there's no danger looking by, first of all. Even while they're enjoying a nice meal of grass, she's constantly raising her head and looking around. She's alert for the slightest sign of danger. So mother deer protects her babies. She also leads them to places where they're able to eat. She helps them make sure that, that they receive the nourishment that they need. And in fact, she also makes sure that all of their other needs are met as well. She cares for them in every way. And in the same way, that's what pastors, and as we're saying, elders are called to do, according to the Bible. Elders aren't, as is so often assumed, simply board members, or maybe the church equivalent to corporate executives. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's a view that a lot of people have about elders, even in churches that are generally biblical. Uh, a lot of people view elders essentially as board members whose responsibilities consist mainly of voting on church policies and overseeing church finances and carrying out other administrative responsibilities. People don't typically expect elders to be personally involved in people's lives. And yet, as we've just seen in the Bible, that's precisely what God calls elders to do. Right? Elders are most fundamentally shepherds. And have the responsibility. They're called by God to feed the sheep and protect the sheep and care for all the different needs that the sheep have. Any administrative responsibilities that the elders have are secondary in nature. And that naturally leads us to ask, what kind of a person But we should entrust this weighty responsibility to? So question number two is this. What are the qualifications of an elder. I've just described what elders are and how they function. Now, how do we know if someone's qualified to serve in this way? Well, you probably noticed that our main text in Titus gives us a list of these qualifications. And right at the outset, before I take you through this list, understand that these are qualities that we should all aspire to. This list of things really just describes, for the most part, an exemplary Christian. Like, this is what a normal 
church member should look like. So an elder must be these things in order to serve as an elder, while all other Christians should be these things. So even if you're not an elder and have no aspirations to be an elder, just think about these things as they relate to your own life. Use this list the way people uh, use a mirror. Like when we're getting ready in the morning, a mirror helps us see various things about ourselves. It helps us make sure our hair is neat, or if you're a lady who wears makeup, that your makeup is put on correctly. And then maybe a couple times during the day, we might quickly glance in a mirror to, to make sure that you know, nothing's stuck in our teeth or you know, no other crazy things are going on. And so a mirror tells us things about ourselves that are very helpful to know uh, for the purposes of social interaction. And in the same way, when we gaze at the Bible, and especially at a passage like this one, it also shows us things about ourselves, things that are very helpful to know as we seek to live in a way that pleases the Lord. So just let that be your mentality as we work through this list. Paul writes, beginning in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, what kind of elders should Titus appoint? Let's keep reading. If anyone is above reproach. That's the first quality and the quality that encompasses all the others. If you're looking for a blanket description of the kind of person qualified to be an elder, that's it. Above reproach. That means... That there's nothing in your life that would lead someone to have doubts about your character. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that you're perfect, since if that were the case, our church would have zero elders. Uh, but it does mean that there's no significant blemish in your life. And one of the things that entails, as we continue along, is that you're the husband of one wife. Now, this assumes that elders are men, which is... An entirely separate discussion we don't really have time to get into this morning, although I am very glad to answer questions about it after the service. Um, and it means not only that polygamy is obviously out of bounds, but also that an elder should be completely faithful to his wife. Now, this phrase, husband of one wife, is more literally translated a one-woman man. A one-woman man. So any kind of sexual misconduct, whether it be having an affair or viewing pornography, disqualifies a man from being an elder. Not only that, but this passage also states that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now that word believers can also be translated as faithful. So there are different views about this. Uh, some people think this refers, this means that an elder's kids must be regenerate, that they must be Christians, while others think that uh, the kids simply need to be faithful in the sense of being well-behaved. And as is defined in the verse there, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, there are good arguments on both sides of that debate, but at the very least, the principle here is that a man's ability to shepherd his family is a key indicator 
of his ability to shepherd the church. It doesn't matter how talented he is at preaching or teaching or administrating or anything else. If he can't even shepherd his own family, then don't make him the shepherd of a church. Um, that's also why a parallel list of qualifications that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 states that an elder must manage his own household well. Basically saying the same thing. He, it, he must manage his own household well. It all comes back to this idea of proving your leadership in the home before being given leadership in the church. And then in Titus 1.7, uh, Paul repeats the qualification of, of an elder being above reproach, which confirms how central that is. And then Paul writes, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You know what sticks out to me about that list? All of these things here relate to the man's character. That's what's most important. As we're looking at the, the resumes, so to speak, of potential elders, hopefully we're not just looking for the, the same kind of things that PNC Bank would be looking for in hiring a bank executive. We're not primarily looking for professional pedigree or accomplishments. Rather, our main interest is in the man's character. If you don't remember anything else from this entire list, remember that character is central. That's way more important than gifting or abilities or anything else. Because how can a man impart what he doesn't possess? Right? How can he impart godliness if he himself isn't godly? What parent in this room would hire somebody to teach their kids swimming lessons with the instructor not even knowing how to swim themselves? Not a good idea, right? And so an elder can't impart godliness if he doesn't possess it. And you can take that right back to the nature of a church. The church isn't a business that advances through clever marketing techniques or smooth business practices. Um, if it were, I'm sure God would instruct us, give a lot more weight to professional pedigree and, and other abilities. But he doesn't. And that's because the main way the church advances in its mission of, of spreading the gospel, other than, of course, by verbally sharing the gospel, is simply by being godly. By being recognizably different than the world around us. And if the elders of the church aren't godly, then the rest of the church probably won't be very godly either. Yet there is one ability that is mentioned in this text as a qualification. Perhaps raising godly children did have a lot to do with a man's ability. But in addition to that, look at the ability described in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. 
And along those same lines, the parallel passage of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 states that an elder must be, quote, able to teach. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he has to be able to get behind a pulpit and preach to a crowd. But it does mean that he has to have both knowledge of the Bible and the ability to communicate that knowledge effectively. And according to Titus 1, not only should he be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but he also has to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So if a false teacher comes in and, and starts hanging out with us and, and begins spreading all these false and crazy ideas, well then an elder has to be able to pick up a Bible and demonstrate both to that person and to everybody else why those crazy ideas are so crazy and why they're unbiblical. And so those are the qualifications of an elder related to both character and abilities. And that leaves us with just one question left to answer. How should elders relate to each other? And the answer is simply as a plurality. In other words, the elders should function together as a team. Which, of course, requires, uh, first of all, that there be more than one pastor or elder in the church. Uh, the Bible doesn't give a, a specific number of elders that every church has to have. But every example of eldership in the New Testament is of multiple elders, multiple pastors leading in a church. It's about, uh, we see team leadership is the exclusive New Testament model. Uh, we can see this quite clearly in our main text back in verse 5. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Notice, of course, there that the word elders is plural. Multiple elders in every town. Also, when Paul and Barnabas had completed their first missionary journey, where they went around and started a bunch of churches, Acts 14.23 records how they went back around a second time and, quote, appointed elders for them in every church. Again, notice how that's written. They appointed elders for them in every church. So every church, it said, had multiple elders. And there are plenty of other passages that we could go to as well. But just suffice it to say that the New Testament teaching on what we might call the plurality of elders is very uh, clear and very pervasive. And uh, by the way, all the elders in the church have equal authority. It's not like you have some elders who have you know, been to seminary and receive a paycheck from the church being like senior or top tier elders. And then you have the other elders who perhaps haven't been to seminary and don't receive a paycheck from the church being junior elders. Right? That's not how it works. All elders are equal in their authority, regardless of the um, education or their source of income. So to make it clear for our context, right, I answer to Paul just as much as Paul answers to me. <laughs> I answer to Kevin just as much as Kevin answered to me. So I'm not like over them as their boss. Um, instead, we all answer to each other. Um, and when we walk into an elders meeting and vote on different things, we all come into that room with just one vote. And one reason the Bible sets it up like that, uh, I believe, is because we all need 
accountability. Think about the way that the United States government is set up. It uses a system of checks and balances to make sure that no one entity possesses too much power. So there are three branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial. And if one of those branches gets out of line or tries to get too much power, well, the other branches are able to step in and prevent that from happening. Because too much power can be a dangerous thing. And in the same way, it's very dangerous for any one person to have too much power in the church. And so having more than one elder helps keep everybody accountable. Also, having that plurality of elders leads to the, the different elders balancing out each other's weaknesses. Uh, because nobody is perfectly balanced. Right? We all have weaknesses. Uh, for example, I've been told by my wife in an ever so loving way that I most assuredly do not have the gift of mercy. All right. My natural temperament is to uh, get things done and to accomplish a mission. And uh, yeah, I, I want to see us reach this area with the gospel, guys. That's, that's my passion. And so, if you know, someone's kind of slowing things down or maybe limping along a little bit spiritually, uh, just to be candid with you, my, my natural, unfiltered response would be to inquire, you know, hey, you're limping over there. Do you think you could limp a little bit faster? Right? <laughs> um, now, of course, I am regularly repenting of that mentality, and, and by God's grace, I, I, I do think he is putting a deep and authentic, more, uh, I guess, sensitivity and compassion into my heart, but it is still an area of weakness. However, multiple elders balance out each other's weaknesses. So for us in our situation right now, this is why we want to go from having only two elders to having three or four elders. Uh, the more elders we have, uh, first of all, the more accountability there is to make sure that there's not too much power concentrated in the, the hands of such a, a small number of people. And also, the more balance there is. Since there are more men who are able to fill in each other's weaknesses and ensure that a diversity of strengths is present on the elder team. So hopefully it goes without saying that this decision of who to appoint into these positions is uh, quite important. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I believe it's actually the most important decision our church can ever make. It's kind of like when someone's trying to choose a person to marry, right? Like you really don't want to choose the wrong person. And in a similar way, we want to be very careful about who we appoint as elders in the church because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the church's mission of spreading the gospel and representing God here in this community. Because that's really, <laughs> that's what it's all about. God has created the church to display His glory to the world and to tell the world what they so desperately need to hear about Jesus. 
Right? That involves first helping people understand the reality of their sin and, and also the gravity of their sin. Like how serious of a thing it is to, to sin against a holy God. And then that also involves explaining to them the wonderful news about how Jesus came to rescue sinners like us. You know, we've been talking about elders as shepherds of the church. But ultimately, it's Jesus who's the shepherd. Listen to how Jesus describes himself in John 10, 11. He states, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus isn't just any shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And the thing that makes him so good is that he laid down his life for the sheep. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. Our sins cried out for God's judgment. But Jesus took that judgment. He, his death paid our debt and satisfied God's justice. Jesus took it all on himself. He is the good shepherd. Then, of course, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead so that we also can share in his victory over sin and death. And the Bible says that the way we can experience that victory is very simple. He says we have to turn away from everything in our lives that dishonors God and look to Jesus alone as our only hope of rescue. If we insist on trusting in our own morality to get us to heaven, we'll die in our sins. But if we look to Jesus, he'll rescue us. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel. It's the message of Jesus. And that's why it's so critical for us to appoint godly, qualified men to lead this church. So that we as a church can continue proclaiming this glorious gospel message for generations to come. Without deviating in any way from the course that the Lord has laid out for us. Having qualified elders is the thing, humanly speaking, that'll keep our church on track and keep our focus where it needs to be.